This is September 15th, 2019, and I'm going to uh, dive into the whole matter of uh, climate change, global warming, and uh, how we might respond to that uh, in, in maybe in other ways than we already have been responding to it. Um, in researching this last night and this morning, um, I came across uh, some range of opinions about it from scientists as well as non-scientists. And uh, I'm hoping that this Taisha will kick off uh, discussions that we can have in our Sangha uh, about all this. Um, one of our members in Madison, one of our Madison Zen Center members, um, who was actually was the... Uh, the county executive of uh, Dane Dane County, which is where Madison is, he actually spent some time afterward in Washington. Was the uh, national president of county executives. <clears throat> he uh, was telling me uh, last year that that he's he's begun something that he hopes will. Proved to be helpful, uh, which is just within his own family. He's um, he's inviting people that is extended family, not just his immediate family, nuclear family, but the extended family to uh, come together uh, periodically, maybe once a month or something. I don't I don't remember what he said, and just talk about this. And, and see what comes up. Not necessarily to come up with any solutions. Because when you really get into this, it, it appears to be pretty resistant to solutions. That is, is global warming. But just to get together uh, in order to, to do something beyond what one may be doing on an individual level. Um, this intrigued me. This uh, This initiative to to trust what we can do together and what might come out of what might emerge from a a, a meeting or a series of meetings and to see see what comes out of it um, it's taken me this long to to act on this uh, I told him I thought it was a great idea and I would you know, give it some thought and see if we might do it in our own local family, the Sangha. Um, and then coming across these articles, I realized that um, there is there is plenty to discuss, uh, even beyond particular uh, solutions. There's quite a range here. I'm going to start with an article that just came out in The New Yorker, by Jonathan Franzen. It's the uh, most uh, sobering of the articles I have here. Um, and uh, the name of the article, this, the, the date I have here is September, anyway, just, yeah, 8th, December 8th, September 8th. And this, the title is, What If We Stopped Pretending? And he said, the, the, the subtitle is, The Climate Apocalypse is Coming. To prepare for it, we need to admit that we can't prevent it. 
and uh, I, I think I said Jonathan Friends and longtime writer for the New York for the New Yorker. He starts off um, the the struggle to rein in global carbon emissions and keep the planet from melting down has the feel of Kafka's fiction. The goal has been clear for 30 years, and despite earnest efforts, we've made essentially no progress toward reaching it. Today, the scientific evidence verges on irrefutable. If you're younger than 60, you have a good chance of witnessing the radical destabilization of life on Earth. Massive crop failures, apocalyptic fires, imploding economies, epic flooding, hundreds of millions of refugees fleeing regions made uninhabitable by extreme heat or permanent drought. That's if you're under 60. If you're under 30, he says, you're all but guaranteed to witness it. If you care about the planet and about the people and animals who live on it, there are two ways to think about this. You can keep on hoping that catastrophe is preventable and feel ever more frustrated or enraged by the world's inaction, or you can accept that disaster is coming and begin to rethink what it means to have hope. So it's not, in spite of what he's going to now be saying, uh, he's not without hope. But just to lay this out, because I think it's an important uh, angle on, on climate change is to accept it to some sense. It's it's really kind of a, the macro version of our own death. Individually, we know, each one of us knows we're going to die, and, and we can't fully live until we accept that, until we really face it. And this is a big part of Zen practice, is is uh, facing that, and more than that, facing the fact that we're always dying. It's not just something that happens after 80 years or whatever. That It's a continuous process that's going on all the time. But yet, at the same time, yes, we will not always be here. And so he, he, he approaches uh, the earth the same way we might individually approach this fact of our own inevitable uh, death. He says, even at this late date, expressions of unrealistic hope continue to abound. Hardly a day seems to pass without my reading that it's time to, quote, roll up our sleeves and, quote, save the planet. That the problem of climate change can be solved, in quotation marks, if we summon the collective will. Although this message was probably still true in 1988, when the science became fully clear, we've emitted as much atmospheric carbon in the past 30 years as we did in the previous two centuries of industrialization. The facts have changed, but somehow the message stays the same. Psychologically, this denial makes sense. Despite the outrageous fact that I'll soon be dead forever, I live in the present, not the future. Given a choice between an alarming abstraction, death, and the reassuring, reassuring evidence of my senses, breakfast, my mind prefers to focus on the latter. 
The planet, too, is still marvelously intact, still basically normal. Seasons changing, another election year coming, new comedies on Netflix. And its impending collapse is even harder to wrap my mind around than death. Other kinds of apocalypse, whether religious or thermonuclear or asteroidal, at least have the binary neatness of dying. One moment the world is there, the next moment it's gone forever. Climate apocalypse, by contrast, is messy. It will take the form of increasingly severe crises compounding chaotically until civilization begins to fray. Things will get very bad, but maybe not too soon, and maybe not for everyone. Maybe not for me. He continues, some of the denial, however, is more willful. The evil of the Republican Party's position on climate science is well known, but denial is entrenched in progressive politics too, or at least in its rhetoric. The Green New Deal, the blueprint for some of the most substantial proposals put forth on the issue, is still framed as our last chance to avert catastrophe and save the planet by way of gargantuan renewable energy projects. Many of the groups that support those proposals deploy the language of, quote, stopping climate change, or imply that there's still time to prevent it. Unlike the political right, the left prides itself on listening to climate scientists who do indeed allow that catastrophe is theoretically avertable. But not everyone seems to be listening carefully. The stress falls on the word theoretically. Our atmosphere and oceans can absorb only so much heat before climate change, intensified by various feedback loops, spins completely out of control. The consensus among scientists and policymakers is that we'll pass this point of no return if the global mean temperature rises by more than 2 degrees Celsius. Paren, maybe a little more, but also maybe a little less. The uh, IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, tells us that to limit the rise to less than 2 degrees, we not only need to reverse the trend of the past three decades, we need to approach zero net emissions globally in the next three decades. A little more here. That is, to say the least, a tall order. It also assumes that you trust the IPCC's calculations. Um, new research uh, described last month in Scientific American uh, demonstrates that climate, sci climate scientists have underestimated its pace and severity. And then he goes on more about uh, how even those figures are not entirely reliable, that we can't really count on them. Uh, he says, when a scientist predicts a rise of 2 degrees Celsius, she's merely naming a number about which she's very confident. The rise will be at least 2 degrees. The rise might, in fact, be far higher. He continues, as a non-scientist, I do my own kind of modeling. I run various future scenarios through my brain, apply the constraints of human psychology and political reality 
take note of the relentless rise in global energy consumption, and he says in parentheses, thus far, the carbon savings provided by the renewable by renewable energy have been more than offset by consumer demand, and count the scenarios in which collective action averts catastrophe. Um, And then he goes on to say that these uh, scenarios that would uh, avert catastrophe uh, are based on certain conditions that are uh, very much suspect, whether they could ever pull it off. I don't have time to go into that, but it's even more uh, sobering. I, I think I will go into this. I think it's important that we face face this head-on right right at the outset. Um, the first condition is that every one of the world's major polluting countries institute draconian conservation measures, shut down much of its energy and transportation infrastructure, and completely retool its economy. To stay within this, a top-down intervention needs to happen not only in in every country, but throughout every country. Making New York City a green utopia will not avail if Texans keep pumping oil and driving pickup trucks. Then he says the actions taken by these countries must also be the right ones. Vast sums of government money must be spent without wasting it and without lining the wrong pockets. Here it's useful to recall the Kafkaesque joke of the European Union's biofuel mandate, which served to accelerate the deforestation of Indonesia for palm oil plantations, and the American subsidy of ethanol fuel, which turned out to benefit no one but corn farmers. Finally, overwhelming numbers of human beings, including millions of government-hating Americans, need to accept high taxes and severe curtailment of their familiar lifestyles without revolting. They must accept the reality of climate change and have faith in the extreme measures taken to combat it. They can't dismiss news they dislike as fake. They have to set aside nationalism and class and racial resentments. They have to make sacrifices for distant, threatened nations and distant future generations. They have to be permanently terrified by hotter summers and more frequent natural disasters rather than just getting used to them. Every day, instead of thinking about breakfast, they have to think about death. And then um, he shifts. And, um, And so I wonder what might happen if instead of denying reality, we told ourselves the truth. First of all, even if we can no longer hope to be saved from two degrees of warming, there's still a strong practical and ethical case 
for reducing carbon emissions. In the long run, it probably makes no difference how badly we overshoot two degrees. Once the point of no return is passed, the world will become self-transforming. In the shorter term, however, half measures are better than no measures. Halfway cutting our emissions would make the immediate effects of warming somewhat less severe, and it would somewhat postpone the point of no return. The most terrifying thing about climate change is the speed at which it's advancing, the almost monthly shattering of temperature records. If collective action resulted in just one fewer devastating hurricane, just a few extra years of relative stability, it would be a goal worth pursuing. In fact, it would be worth pursuing even if it had no effect at all. To fail to conserve a finite resource when conservation measures are available, to needlessly add carbon to the atmosphere when we know very well what carbon is doing to it, is simply wrong. Although the actions of one individual have zero effect on the climate, this doesn't mean that they're meaningless. I think this is a very important point. Um, each one of us is someday going to die. But still, there is life now, and we want to respect the law of causation, respect uh, the principle of not harming, doing what we can to avoid causing harm, first of all to others, but also to ourselves. It doesn't matter that we're eventually going to be gone. There's now. There's this. This is very Zen-like in its recognition of the importance of the present and not to be dwelling in thoughts about annihilation. He says... Each, each of us has an ethical choice to make. During the Protestant Reformation, when end times was merely an idea, not the horribly concrete thing it is today, a key doctrinal question was whether you should perform good works because it will get you into heaven, or whether you should perform them simply because they're good. Because while heaven is a question mark, you know that this world would be better if everyone performed them. I can respect the planet and care about the people with whom I share it without believing that it will save me. In Zen, we go one step further. It's not just a matter of, of, uh, of living upright lives in order to get some, get into heaven, avoid hell. And it's also not just uh, a matter of doing it because it's, it's good, but because to not do so causes harm. We don't need good. We don't need uh, right and wrong, good and bad, if we just respect the law of causation, respect karma. He then says, more than that, a false hope of salvation can be actively harmful. If you persist in believing that catastrophe can be averted, let's say, if we persist in believing we're not going to die, you commit yourself to tackling a problem so immense that it needs to be everyone's overriding priority forever. 
One result, weirdly, is a kind of complacency by voting for green candidates, riding a bicycle to work, avoiding air travel, you might feel that you've done everything you can for the only thing worth doing. Whereas, if you accept the reality that the planet will soon overheat to the point of threatening civilization, there's a whole lot more you should be doing. And then he makes a point I never had considered. Our resources aren't infinite. Even if we invest much of them in a longest-shot gamble, reducing carbon emissions in the hope that it will save us, it's unwise to invest all of them. Every billion dollars spent on high-speed trains, which may or may not be suitable for North America, is a billion not banked for disaster preparedness, reparations to inundated countries, or future humanitarian relief. Every renewable energy megaproject that destroys a living ecosystem, and he says, for example, the green energy development now occurring in Kenya's national parks, I don't know about that, the giant hydroelectric projects in Brazil, the construction of solar farms in open spaces rather than in settled areas, Every one of this, he says, erodes the resilience of a natural world already fighting for its life. Soil and water depletion, overuse of pesticides, the devastation of world fisheries. Collective will is needed for these problems, too. And unlike the problem of carbon, they're within our power to solve. As a bonus, many low-tech conservation actions, for example, restoring forests, preserving grasslands, eating less meat, can reduce our carbon footprint as effectively as massive industrial changes. Well, there's another article coming here that questions that. All-out war on climate change made sense only as long as it was winnable. Once you accept that we've lost it, other kinds of action take on greater meaning. Preparing for fires and floods and refugees is a directly pertinent example. But the impending catastrophe heightens the urgency of almost any world-improving action. In times of increasing chaos, he's referring to now, people seek protection in tribalism and armed force rather than the rule of law. And our best defense against this kind of dystopia is to maintain functioning democracies, functioning legal systems, functioning communities. I think many of us now feel all these things are under threat. And uh, in the next uh, election, maybe we can start to reverse that threat. In this respect, any movement toward a more just and civil society can now be considered a meaningful climate action. Securing fair elections is a climate action. Combating extreme wealth inequality is a climate action. Shutting down the hate machines on social media is a climate action. Instituting humane immigration policy. Advocating for racial and gender equality. Promoting respect for laws and their enforcement. Supporting a free and independent press. Ridding the country of assault weapons. These are all meaningful climate actions. To survive rising temperatures, every system, 
whether of the natural world or of the human world, will need to be as strong and healthy as we can make it. I'm going to um, end that article there and then, uh, and then go to one of the uh, two articles I came across that were responses to Friends and Jonathan Franzen's article. One of them uh, is by a climate scientist who is at um, who works at Columbia and uh, and NASA. She has all kinds of, uh, of of other credentials, Stanford and other universities. And uh, her article, and this is her name is Kate Marvel, and this was uh, dated September 11th. That's just four days ago. Her article is called, Shut Up, Franzen. And the subtitle is, Climate change is real and things will get worse. But because we understand the driver of potential doom, it's a choice, not a foregone conclusion. And uh, this is a direct rebuttal to at least the first part of his article, The, the, the Doom and Gloom. Um, and that's another another reason I would hope we can get together and talk about these things in a series of meetings, just to try to sort this out. And because uh, it's hard, it's hard to evaluate, especially if you're not a scientist. Um, I still think the overriding point is that it's just a matter of time, um, and that therefore, what do we? What, how do we live? Uh, it's just like individual death. If it can direct us back to the quality of our lives now, uh, then that's we can get a lot out of that. She says, I'm just going to the near the end of the article, it is precisely the fact that we understand the potential driver of doom that changes it from a foregone conclusion to a choice. That was the subtitle. A terrible outcome in the universe of all possible futures. I run models through my brain. I check them with the calculations I do on a computer. This is not optimism or even hope. Even the best of all possible worlds, I cannot offer the certainty of safety. Doom, she says, is a possibility. It may, it may be that we have already awakened a sleeping monster that will in the end devour the world. It may be that the very fact of human nature, whatever that is, forecloses any possibility of concerted action. But I am a scientist, which means I believe in miracles. I love that. people. Most people would think of miracles as something out of the realm of science. But listen, I am a scientist, which means I believe in miracles. I live on one. We are improbable life on a perfect planet. No other place in the universe has nooks or perfect mountaintops or small and beautiful gardens. A flower in a garden is an exquisite thing rooted in soil formed from old rocks broken by weather. It breathes in sunlight and carbon dioxide and conjures its food as if by magic. 
For the flower to exist, a confluence of extraordinary things must happen. It needs land and air and light and water, all in the right proportion and all at the right time. Pick it, isolate it, and watch it wither. Flowers, like people, cannot grow alone. And this is another response to uh, Franzen's article um, called Home is Always Worth It by Mary Anais Heglar. I couldn't find out who she was, what she does. Just one, one section here in her article. She's calling for this she, the room in the middle, she says, that, that there is this abundant room in the middle. The community that prides itself on its scientific nuance can learn to embrace emotional nuance. It is absolutely possible to prepare for the disasters already terrifyingly upon us while also doing our damnedest to quit baking more in. We can acknowledge the storm or emotions that comes with watching our world unravel, process those emotions, and pick ourselves up to protect what we can. Because it's worth it. Because we're worth it. We don't have to be Pollyannish or fatalistic. We can just be human. We can be messy, imperfect, contradictory, broken. We can recognize that hopelessness, in quotation marks, does not mean helplessness. Again, uh, at that from a Zen perspective, uh, the, the real problem comes when we are dwelling in thoughts about uh, the catastrophe. Um, what, what good does that do, dwelling in thoughts? Yes, there, there will probably some, be some end times. The sutras um, from 2,000, 2,500 years ago uh, talk about this, for this Buddhist understanding is that everything is in cycles. There's a, a, things arise, things last a shorter or longer time, and things pass away. Individual life, why would it be any different from our own planet? There's nothing wrong with just acknowledging that, 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 uh, yes, uh, that it has, our time is limited in this planet, that the planet's time is limited. But then, okay, that's that. Now, how can we live without unnecessary waste or um, ego-centered carelessness, heedlessness? Uh, there are koans that uh, address the matter of, of our individual demise, our death, our eventual death. Um, 
There's one in the uh, Blue Cliff record where the monk asks the master, uh, when the world is annihilated, does it also go along with everything else? Referring to our true nature. And the master said, yes, it'll go along with everything else. And the monk's not wanting to hear that answer. He says, it'll go along with everything else. And then their master repeats, it'll go along with everything else. It's a, it's a good one. It's a good koan. Uh, um, most people think of our true nature as a thing apart from the world. But the, the, um, the counterpart to that koan, sort of the, the complement to it is in the, another collection, the Mumon Khan, where in the verse Mumon says, uh, when the universe is annihilated, it remains indestructible. It's a beauty. So they seem to be saying opposite things, seem to be contradicting one another. So it makes them koans. And then there's the one in the Mumon Khan also, number five, uh, Kyogen's Man Up a Tree. I'm just doing this from memory now, uh, where uh, the master uh, poses this metaphor where he says it's like one hanging from a tree by his teeth, tree branch by his teeth, his hands can't grasp a bough, his feet can't reach one. Uh, and from down below, uh, the questioner says, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? Which is just a kind of a stock um, question that really means, what is ultimate truth? What is it? What is the nature of reality? What is our true self? And there's no response uh, given in the koan. That's the st for the student to resolve. Um, if you, if, if the guy hanging from the tree goes to answer the questioner, then he'll fall and lose his life. If, but if he doesn't answer the questioner, then he fails. So what should he do? Really, the, the underlying point of the koan is that we're all up a tree. What do we do about it? What did we do about our death, our individual death, climate change, the planet? It's all pointing us back to life, to this. One more here. Um, this is uh, an article from 2015 by a 
pair, it's, a, it's an interview, a conversation with a pair Espen Stokness. Uh, that's that's a phonetic pronunciation of S-T-O-K-N-E-S. And uh, he wrote a book called What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. And the first question to this pair, Stokness, is, there are many surprises in your book, including your explanation of what really keeps people from taking action on climate change. It's not always what people might expect. So what keeps us from doing the right thing? And then he identifies five main defenses. He calls them the five D's that keep us from acknowledging the need for change. First of all, we distance ourselves from the climate issue. That would be, um, yeah, we distance ourselves from the climate issue. We avoid doom and sacrifice messengers. We, we avoid doom and sacrifice messengers, you know, killing the messenger. We experience cognitive dissonance. We get rid of fear and guilt through denial mechanisms and automatically resist criticisms of my identity, job, and lifestyle. I don't find a D there, but so, so it's all right. We automatically resist criticisms. Maybe it's a D in Norwegian. He's a Norwegian. Um, so I guess that would mean resist criticism so you know if you're if you're invested in the mining industry if you're a miner then you don't you can't imagine life without mining and and so you resist it the whole idea of climate change and then he goes on and I should be clear it's not that people don't care the problem is that people can't see there are any effective solutions. Then they feel helpless, start distancing themselves from the issue, and give little priority to it. Our limited pool of what we most often worry about is often filled with concerns closer to us, our job, family, health, and education. Okay, I think everyone understands this. Then the, the questioner asks, a key difference in your book, as compared to other recent climate books, is that you reveal how simple it can be to change behavior if we approach the topic differently. Notice, change behavior, not um, get ourselves out of this mess. Um, what should we be doing differently, and how are these new approaches proving effective? And then the author says, for too long, we've, re- we've relied solely on a highly rational double push. More scientific facts will finally convince the wayward about climate change, uh, and there must be a global price on carbon emissions. But neither is rooted in our messy social reality or guided by how our brains actually think. Oddly enough, more facts and more taxes don't build policy support among people. It's time for a different approach. Finding ways of engaging the goal with the evolutionary flow of the human mind rather than push against it. One starting point is to use the power of social networks. Most of us imitate others. If I believe everyone else is driving big cars and using more energy than me, then I'll do the same or more. Research has shown that if people believe their neighbors are conserving more energy and water than themselves, then they'll start doing it too, or more. 
When working with social networks, we should avoid framing climate change as catastrophe, cost, and sacrifice. Rather, we should employ supportive framings by positioning climate change as opportunities for smarter growth solutions for our cities and companies or as a national insurance issue or as a public health concern. And then another question. You point out that people often change their behaviors before they change their beliefs. So is it really possible to get a denier to make behavioral changes, to live a more climate-friendly life or back more climate change-friendly policies? And will that really lead to him or her accepting the facts eventually on climate change? And he says, in reality, behavior nudges are also methods of climate communication. They help us get around the five main barriers that hinder support for climate policy. They work around the distance barrier by making the climate issue feel near and relevant to personal behavior. And then last question, you define the feeling that many climate change activists and scientists have around the gloom and doom of global warming as the great grief. Are we working through the five stages of grief as the notion of a dying planet takes hold? Explain how we can move from depression to action. Here um, you see the... um, it's an, the question is framed as an, an, an analogy to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of, of dying. Uh, first comes denial. Well, there's, and there's another version that says seven stages or ten stages, but the original one was the five stages when you've heard that you're, you're going to die. First is denial. Second is anger. Third is bargaining. Fourth is despair. And then last, acceptance. And the, his answer, climate depression is, well, depressing. Despair, anger, sorrow, loss, and exasperation, all these types of feelings are creeping up on people who get into the reality of global warming. It feels devastating, looks inevitable, and terribly destructive to the beautiful landscapes we love. Most people want to move out of this darkness into, and into hope and action immediately. Scientists in particular are trained to take their feelings out of the equations. But maybe we should not discard the despair and depression so fast. That our individual grief and emotional loss can actually be a broadly shared reaction to the decline of nature is an idea that rarely appears in conversation or the popular media. The more-than-personal sadness is what I call the great grief, a feeling rising in us in our psyche as if from the earth itself at this time. So here's where he would find some common ground with Jonathan Franzen's um, deeply, um, oh, truthful, let's say, uh, or depressing uh, outline uh, because it's 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 by through accepting uh, the fact that, uh, as Dogen says, um, the inevitability of our death and the and the the certainty of our death 
and the uncertainty of the time of our death. Both of these apply with climate change. But I think the key thing is to is to begin as a beginning. I mean, aside from things we can do individually in our lives, but and there's a whole argument that I and I don't have time for that to read is that um, individual actions are pretty meaningless. They're not going to be effective compared to the uh, what we're up against with corporate greed and political uh, paralysis. Um, but we, yes, we still will do. We do what we need to um, individually. Um, but then beyond that, am I the only one who wants to get into this? Face it. This is this is what we do in Zen. We face um, what we might fear. We face it, and in facing it, we come to some resolution or an accommodation with it. And I think the facing. Um, it's best done um, aside from zazen. That's the ultimate way. But uh, but then in talking about it with others, I don't know how this can happen. We're just entering the busiest quarter of the year. We have this weekend after weekend. We have things scheduled. But um, I'm going to I'm going to send out an email because most people in the sangha don't even hear this day show. I'm going to send out an email and and see if we can't find a way to find a Saturday or a Sunday uh, to just begin, begin talking about it. Um, what I've thrown out is a bunch of, of uh, sometimes uh, contradictory things. Well, let's talk about it and see what we can come up with, uh, and just even, even at a feeling level to start with. Just imagine, again, imagine you've just got a diagnosis of terminal illness. Uh, you don't just go isolate yourself. You talk about it. I think I think that's what I would do, and um, and go from there. Just see what comes up. All right, our time is up. We'll stop and recite the four vows. Dharma gaze 
beyond measure, I bow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I bow to attain.